0: A picture is worth a thousand words. Now, to be certain, not every picture is worth a thousand words. I mean, there are those pictures we walk by in our home almost every day and don't give really any thought to, right? Whether it's because pictures are super basic, or maybe they're blurry in appearance, maybe the camera was not all that good, or your skills are off, they probably won't make it into the local newspaper or museum anytime soon. Many of us have those pictures around the house that really aren't much to look at, but we like having them around anyways. They serve more like background color. They add a little simplicity to the ambiance in the hallway or the living room space. But really, at the end of the day, they're, they're nothing all that special. They're fairly generic, and they don't really seize anyone's attention when they walk by them. You know, maybe it's that ordinary family picture that was taken in the backyard. Or that Kodak moment with your pet hamster. That hamster you can't even remember its name or if it had a name to begin with. Or that embarrassing picture of yourself still hanging up in your parents' house some 20 years later. You've told your mom to take it down. It's nothing attractive to look at, but it stays there nonetheless. But there are pictures we come across from time to time that do, in fact, make us stop and think. They can even leave us breathless. They can cause us to stand still in awe, uh, to be taken back in utter amazement. Uh, Pictures that seem to extend its hands, grab our faces, and compel us to draw to a closer look cause us to even sometimes wish that we were in the moment in that very picture that we're staring at. Several of you are old enough to remember watching television about 60 years ago when our 35th president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. And for those who weren't alive, which would be about three-fourths of us, we have still shots from that historical week, Photos that captured some of the awful and sad events of that time in our country's history. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's that one picture where you see three-year-old John Kennedy Jr. from 1963. The image captures the little boy saluting the casket at the funeral procession of his father, President John F. Kennedy. Photographer Dan Farrell, who took the photo, called it, quote, "...the saddest thing I've ever seen." In my whole life. Or we've probably at one time or another looked at those fascinating pictures of the earth from outer space, found somewhere in a science book, or an ocean floor view of some of the world's most exotic animals. You know, one of my favorite shows on Netflix is Planet, or Blue Planet, or anything with water and ocean and sharks. One thing you will find when Shark Week comes around this summer, you'll see me amazed just like you are when you see these massive creatures. They're so large, and yet we become so small, don't we? We realize that this earth is massive, and we're smaller than a grain of sand in the grand scheme of things. What about those iconic sports pictures like the one of Michael Jordan hugging a basketball and then kissing his fourth NBA championship trophy in tears. Of all days, it was Father's Day of 1996, and it was the first title Jordan won without his dad still alive right next to him. And then there's that legendary picture of Muhammad Ali with his mouth wide open and his right arm flexed as he celebrates his first-round knockout of Sonny Liston in the World Heavyweight Championship of 1965. And then there's 9-11. Most of us here still remember, of course, September 11th, 2001. And we've probably all seen those heart-moving pictures of firefighters and policemen carrying people out of the rubble from the demolished Trade Center buildings in New York City. Uh, There are pictures taken from that day that I think will be embedded in our minds and probably stay there for the rest of our lives. You know, whether it's pictures from sad or life-altering events or iconic sports achievements that have never been eclipsed since, or from moving paintings you might see in a famous art gallery somewhere in the world, these kind of pictures can do a number on us, can't they? They can pull on our heartstrings. They can cause us to be filled with feelings of sadness and anger, others with amazement, leaving us in awe as we encounter the story of heroism or courage or perseverance or love, especially even those from 9-11 where we see helpless people being rescued from danger to find healing. Well, this morning in Mark's gospel. We find ourselves staring at a memorable picture of an event that occurred early on in Jesus' ministry. An event that contains several diverse and colorful actors. Each person or group of people that we'll read about, they show their need for help from Jesus. And some of them show their disdain from what they hear from Jesus. Amidst this busy crowd and this life-altering rooftop event, we are invited into, the readers, to Simon Peter's home to see how Jesus might respond when he's put on the spot and as he reveals his surprising identity and his divine authority. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, You can find that on page 488. This morning we'll be studying our next section in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Please follow with me as I read. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? This is God's Word. In this vivid scene, which occurs towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we come across a picture that is worth more than a thousand words. If you're taking notes, I have three main points for us to consider. So let's marvel together at these three images containing this remarkable event. Image number one, the rooftop entry where active faith is seen. Image number two, the reckoning of two unparalleled authorities. And image number three, the response towards God's power and God's mercy to heal. And my prayer, beloved, is as we study more of who Jesus is, is that we'll walk away changed. We'll walk away amazed realizing that there is more to Jesus than what immediately meets the eye. Image number one, the rooftop entry where active faith is seen. Here in Mark chapter 2, we are informed that Jesus has just finished one of his preaching tours around the region of Galilee. We know that because Mark says in verse 1, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days. Now, if you recall from Mark chapter 1, verse 21, you can turn back there quickly if you'd like, uh, Jesus is confronted with a demon-possessed man in a Capernaum synagogue. Uh, After showing his power over demons and his towering teaching authority, even over the scribes, the very busy ministry of Jesus begins. After hordes of people are lined up at Simon's door more than a restaurant in Fort Smith, To be healed by Jesus. Eventually, Jesus has to withdraw. He willingly withdraws from the needy crowds to be alone in prayer. Now, I want you to look at with me at Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, as this will really help us understand what's going on in this next section in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So apparently Jesus did exactly what he told Simon he was going to do. He withdrew to go to other towns like he did in Capernaum. He would enter the synagogue. He would teach from the scriptures. He would cast out demons. And he was simply doing what The Spirit drove him to do what the Spirit led him to do. The Spirit would lead him into the wilderness and lead him out of the wilderness. He would lead him into Nazareth of his hometown, and when his hometown rejected him, eventually he ended up in new towns around the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was one of those towns. And what was Jesus preaching? Well, he was proclaiming the inauguration of the arrival of God's kingdom in himself as he heralded the good news that the messiah had come and as king jesus preaching and healing ministry drew the needy crowds he called people to repent and believe in the gospel now mark here in chapter 2 then says in verses 1 and 2 that word got out that jesus had returned back to his main headquarters in other words, Jesus could subtly leave a mass pack of people to minister to another pack, but Jesus' popularity grew quite quickly. Word got out. They found out not only was Jesus back in town, but they knew exactly where he was staying. they have been watching. they have been talking. Yeah, I think I saw him. Yeah, I think I heard him. Yeah, I know exactly where he's at. He's back at his home base where he would lodge and eat typical meals for an extended part of his public ministry. Uh, Though Mark says here that Jesus was at home, you notice there in verse 1, we know that elsewhere in the Scriptures, specifically the Gospels, that Jesus himself didn't own a home. In fact, his dependence on God's provision in his life particularly in his adult years, his public ministry years, uh, came through the hospitality of others, like one of his own disciples, Simon, whose house he had entered back into back in Mark 1, verse 29. Uh, Just as an aside, there is nothing inherently wrong or sinful or worldly in owning a home, Uh, It might be good for me just to mention this right now. It's, It's a seller's market right now in the United States. You might be thinking about selling a house, getting a lot of money, and then buying another one. I just want to let you know that's perfectly fine and okay. There's nothing necessarily wrong or evil with owning a home. Again, God may call some of us to live in a particular place for a long time, and purchasing a home, putting a down payment on it, might be a better investment of God's resources, rather than renting could be. Apparently, Simon's home was large enough to pile quite a bit of people in. He had a mother-in-law suite. Remember, his mother-in-law was staying with him. That might be a hint for some of you to invest in for the future. Regardless, whether it was a slamming crib or not, it was big enough to house a big group of people. Some sources say probably about 50 people were crammed in like sardines to hear Jesus teach the word in Simon's home. But regardless, I just want to make the statement, it's good to be reminded that in following Jesus, there is no promise from God that you will ever have the means to own your own home, or have a life free from all risk, or even stay in the same house for the rest of your life. Listen, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to learn how to trust him And that means trusting him when he calls us to pick up and leave a familiar place to go where he is leading us to next. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 8, verses 18 to 20? Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Do you remember those famous words by Jesus? And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is basically saying this, if you're going to put the kingdom of God first in your life, it will not be a risk-adverse life. Let me say that again. If you're going to put the kingdom of God first in your life, it's not going to be a risk-adverse life. God will provide as he did for his own son, Jesus. But that might not be the way that your mom and dad always raised you. There are no promises and guarantees that you will live the American dream if you follow Jesus. So the home Mark is referring to here isn't really a reference to Jesus' new digs. He doesn't have a new first-century investment property. Now, this is basically where Jesus lived. This is where he would eat. This is where he would sleep. This is where he would go when he wasn't on the road per se. This was actually Simon's house where Andrew lived and Simon's mother-in-law where Jesus temporarily called home for a season. As you'll notice there in verse 2, the crowds found him. The crowds back in Mark 1.33 were able to find where he was staying. Some days, some weeks later, a word got out about how to find Jesus. And the people flocked to Simon's house. You see, they had last heard when Jesus was in Capernaum that Jesus had healed a leper, an ostracized, quarantined-for-life leper. Who could do such a thing? Who, with such compassion and power, could heal this leper? Well, it's the one that they were seeking after. It was Jesus of Nazareth. Mark says in verse 2, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Friends, that means it's standing room only. Excuse me. It's a packed house. The box office had maxed out the seating capacity to see Jesus. Uh, People are standing so close to one another, they can smell each other's B.O., They can smell what each other ate for breakfast that morning. It's tight. But they don't care. Make no mistake about it. All eyes and all ears are on the center on that room. Suddenly amidst everyone telling their buddy, hey, move over, man. Hey, get your arm out of my rib. Excuse me. The room gets quiet. And everyone's attention has now been seized. On one person. The one who had caused the Capernaum synagogue to be left undone by his power and authority was now conversing with the people who had crowded to see him. He was there among the people in the intimate but packed home of Simon. But Jesus was not off by himself in prayer this time. He was, as Mark says in verse 2, preaching the word to them. Uh, The word preaching here isn't the common word used of keruso, which meant to herald or to preach. Uh, This word is probably better translated speaking the word. Uh, Like any of us would, Jesus knew how to adjust his teaching format to his audience. Whether it was on a hillside, he taught one way. Whether he was in a boat, he may have taught another But regardless of the venue of which Jesus spoke or who the audience was that Jesus spoke to, Jesus opened his mouth and the bread came out of heaven's kitchen pantry to feed hungry souls. You see, when Jesus spoke the words of life, the people listened to what it really is. the word of God. When Jesus spoke, he spoke the word of the living God to the people that God had created for himself. Friends, they were a famine. They were in a mess. They were like people walking around with no water or food in a spiritual desert. They were hungry. They were thirsty, and Jesus knew that. Friends, You might be here this morning, and you feel like you are famined of hearing from the Word of God. And if that's you, you are welcome here. This place is for people who realize they are hungry and thirsty for Jesus. This place is for people who realize the world ain't got nothing for you of any eternal value. Friends, Jesus knows what's going on in our hearts And he knew what was going on in their hearts as these people were looking for hope and healing from Jesus or at least some of them were. In the midst of this evangelistic Bible study led by Jesus, the house gets a surprise visit. Not at the door though, but from the roof. Look at verses 3 and 4. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Friends, what we see here would be a picture. If it was framed on your wall, would be the picture that people would stop in the hallway and give a second look. You see, imagine 50 or so odd people crammed into this First century Jewish home. They're all leaning in to hear what Jesus is speaking to them. He's speaking the words of life to them. And then, all of a sudden, in the midst of being focused on Jesus, they hear a strange noise. And they all look up. They see four men carrying a man on a mat. He's probably a quadriplegic. We're not sure if he was born that way or a tragic life event happened later. Regardless, the man cannot do anything for himself. And he's being carried by these four men and lowered down into the house. Now, it wouldn't have been totally uncommon for people living in this, in this day uh, to be walking on the roof ...of someone's house. Homes in this region would have had roofs constructed of beams... ...laid across and resting on the walls of the house. Between the beams were interlaced sticks and reeds... ...and within these was a woven kind of thatch. On top of the thatch lay several inches of mud. This mud was then packed down hard against the thatch... ...because the builders in the ancient world used rollers... ...to pack and smooth this mud until it was very hard and stable. Stairs outside the building led up to the roof which is where people would go for a fresh air. They would even sometimes take their afternoon dish, their meal, and eat up on the roof. This might be similar to what we might consider a modern-day deck on your own house. Nonetheless, Mark makes it clear to us why they decided to pull this Jason Bourne maneuver from the roof, for all my Bourne identity fans out there. He says they could not get near him because of the crowd. In other words, this was their way of saying this, move out of the way. We're getting our fast pass from Disney, and we're heading to the front of the line, people. We don't have time to waste. I don't have any patience for small talk. I'm here to be healed by Jesus. Well, Mark doesn't tell us who these four men are. Apparently, they're strong enough to carry this paralytic man. We're not sure if they're friends. We're not sure if they're family members. We're not sure if they were men from the local gym or the community. But regardless, whoever they are, they deeply cared for this paralytic man. But these four men were just as eager as the paralytic man to see Jesus. And it's this eagerness... It's this Jason born maneuver. It's this ter- determination that catches the attention of King Jesus. Did you notice carefully what verse 5 says? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Notice here, Jesus does not say he heard their faith, but rather he saw their faith. Friends, true faith in Jesus is a faith that acts because of Jesus. A faith that is truly resting in Jesus is an act of faith committed to prioritizing Jesus. You see, act of faith is just another expression of repentance in faith. It's the same command that Jesus would herald off as he would preach in the synagogues, as he would preach in the villages, as he would go into the homes, repent and believe in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, do you see the earnestness of these men's faith? Do you see how they cared much more about what Jesus thinks rather than what the crowds think? My prayer for us at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church is that we would be a church full of people like that. We care a whole lot more about what Jesus thinks than what the crowds think. We care a whole lot more about what Jesus thinks even than maybe other churches think about us. That we would be a church, brothers and sisters, I pray that we would be a vibrant, humble, fruit-bearing, Jesus-loving church who actively shows our dependence on Jesus that we aren't afraid to say, I'm weak, but he's strong. I'm hungry, but he's got plenty of bread. I'm broken and messed up, but Jesus can heal me. That's what this church is for. It's not for anyone else. It's for people who want Jesus. As I say probably once every 10 sermons, this church is only for two types of people. For serious Christians who want to follow Jesus, and unbelievers who are interested in knowing more about Jesus. We have nothing else here for anyone else in between. Get serious with Jesus or get out. That's how Jesus spoke, and that's how these four men expressed their active faith. Friends, what if, what if, The problems that so many churches think about were no longer a priority and concern to them. What if the main problems that churches talked about, like who offended me, or who irritates me, or how you don't like this decision, or that ministry direction, but rather what if the main problems we talked about as a church were asking ourselves these type of questions? Where are we going to get enough chairs to sit all these hungry people for Jesus? What are we going to do in order to disciple all these new converts that God keeps sovereignly adding to our number? What are we going to do to make sure that every man and woman, every boy and girl is equipped for the work of ministry? Beloved, that's the type of problems we should want to talk about. That's the kind of problems that we should grow gray hair about, or stressful wrinkles about, or staying up late at night about. Friends, one of the reasons why churches get off track is because they're focused on the wrong problem. Friends, we have to deal with interpersonal relationships. We have to deal with the monotony of everyday problems in life, just like all of you do in your own home. But at the end of the day, if we're going to follow the risen Lord Jesus who came with a primary mission to save a people for himself, to build up a church for himself, friends, he's given the church the same mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded us to obey. So friends, let's pray to have those type of problems. Let's pray for a crowded room full of hungry and thirsty people who are ready to hear and obey King Jesus. And let's pray that God would awaken this type of active faith. I like that phrase, active faith in our lives that puts Jesus at the center of the living room. That he's the center in our homes. He's the center in our Lord's Day gatherings. He's the center at my budget. He's the center of what I'm looking at on my computer or smartphone. He is the center of everything in my life. Friends, when Jesus is at the center of everything we do, then we don't become all that important anymore, do we? We don't really care about that satanic trinity anymore of I, me, and myself. We care about the Father. We care about the Son. We care about the Holy Spirit. We begin to worship the triune God as we were created and saved to do. But it's what Jesus says about the forgiveness of sins in verse 5. That awakens the attention of a suspicious few that are seated in the room. Which leads to our next image of this scene. Image number two. The reckoning of two unparalleled authorities. In verse six, we're introduced to a small group of men that apparently decided to secretly find a seat in Simon's house with the rest of the people. We're not told If they kind of like jetted in behind like a really big guy, or they were cloaked in different types of clothes, or they were just cold and callous and didn't give a rip, they looked Simon right in the eye and they knew exactly who he was. These men are called the scribes. If you remember from last week in Mark chapter 1, the scribes were those religious experts of the law. Uh, they are often associated with the Pharisees in the gospel, which we'll learn more about the Pharisees next week. Uh, Luke's gospel refers to the scribes as the teachers of the law. Luke 5, verse 17. Uh, They were teachers of the holy scriptures. They were revered. They were respected. They were highly esteemed. They would walk to the front of the synagogue and show off their prayer boxes and factories and how much they gave and They were basically cronies with the Pharisees. You couldn't miss a scribe. They made their presence known everywhere they went. They had an appetite for people's praise. And they had an accrued authority to teach with a certain type of skill. But here in Mark chapter 2, the scribes are not exactly all that impressed with Jesus. This itinerant Jewish man from Nazareth began stepping on their toes a little bit. In fact, they get angry with Jesus. They're irritated with Jesus. They're somewhat annoyed by Jesus. And for a zealous Jew, they were cut to the heart mad. Angry as a hornet in a hornet's nest, if I even said that right. Their authority had now been challenged by the authority that Jesus possessed. It says in verse 7 that they were so perturbed that they charged Jesus with the capital offense of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy, broadly speaking, is speaking evil of God. It's using words to dishonor him, to revile or curse God. Blasphemy can be more than that. We'll learn more about that in Mark chapter 3. But Jesus was charged with blasphemy on multiple occasions throughout his ministry. In fact, Jesus was called Satan himself, a man possessed with a demon. If you've ever been persecuted or slandered, Jesus understands. But why? Why? Why did Jesus get the charge of a blasphemer? Well, notice what they say under their breath. They didn't say it loud. They said it under their breath because they're cowards. They said this in disgust and unbelief. Look at verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? But God alone. Well, apparently, Jesus had committed the big no no, at least in these scribes' eyes. Jesus was assuming the exclusive divine prerogative of forgiving people of their sins, their sins against God Himself. You see, Jesus was not telling the paralytic how to be forgiven of his sins. Like go to the local priest, say a certain prayer. Jesus wasn't telling the paralytic how to get to the temple to offer the necessary sacrifice to be forgiven of his sins. No, Jesus bypassed both of those common phrases. Jesus was assuming an authority over the man and absolving the man of all guilt and all sin in a way that only God can do. Of course, these scribes were right that only God and God alone can forgive sins because all sin that is committed is first and foremost a sin committed against God. Read Psalm 51 verse 4 sometime to see that more clearly. Therefore, the only person who is able to fully cleanse and fully forgive us of our sins is God himself. The one true God of Holy Scripture. To my non-Christian friends here this morning, before you can appreciate what it means that God forgives sinners, you have to first come to grips with that our God judges all sin. Don't let anyone fool you if they're only telling you God's merciful, but they're, not always, they're also telling you that God is just. To my non-Christian friend, what goes through your mind when you hear that God will judge all sin? Let's get more personal. Do you put yourself and all your sin on the stand in that camp? You see, friend, the bad news is that God is good. The bad news is that God is good and we are not. And because he is good, he will judge us for our sin. You see, an earthly boss or a parent or a police officer or a circuit court judge may render a verdict on your actions in this life, and you might have to suffer consequences for it. But to face this God... A holy and righteous God is to face a judgment like none other. God judges us by the soul-piercing truth of his word, and it leaves us naked, condemned, and unclean. We read in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account Friends, to stand before a holy God is a terrifying picture. To think of everything you have ever done against his holy gaze, your thought, your word, your deeds, things that no one on the planet knows about your life. That is a terrifying reality. But friends, the same God who will judge everyone perfectly is also a God who is merciful and gracious. Listen, our God is more willing to forgive you of all your sin than you are to confess those sins to him. The scriptures tell us of this wonderful we hope that we have as sinners when we come to the end of ourselves and look to God alone for mercy. Listen, God is more merciful towards us than we have been sinful towards him. God has been more merciful to us than we have been sinful towards him. Do you recall what we read earlier from Brother Jason in Psalm 103? Psalm 103, verses 1 to 14. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, "'who forgives all your iniquity, "'who heals all your diseases, "'who redeems your life from the pit, "'who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, "'who satisfies you with good, "'so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. "'The Lord works righteousness and justice "'for all who are oppressed. "'He made known his ways to Moses, "'his acts to the people of Israel.' The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And listen to verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. They're removed. They're gone. Guilty condemned and dirty if you are in Christ this morning it's not on you it's been removed someone stood in your place as a father shows compassion to his children so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust dust Oh, friends, some of us lack joy in the Lord because some of us have forgotten how much we've been forgiven in Christ. You see, the problems with our worship is not the songs that we sing. The problem with our worship is our hearts are not right with God. We can have a band, we can have a saxophone, we can have a harp. I hear we've got one who can play a harp. We can have this thing slamming on Sunday morning. But if our hearts are not engaged with the merciful God of Scripture, it's just noise. It's just noise to heaven. It's not real worship. Worship only happens when your heart is bowed down. Worship only happens when you realize the heinousness of your sin, but the mercy extended to us in Christ. Listen, it's not in us It's not us cleaning up our act. It's not us doing three better things on Tuesday than we did on Monday. That gets us an A plus in God's report card. Baloney, Jesus got the A plus for us. Stop trying to climb up a ladder you can't achieve. Cling to Christ. He is the ladder. He went on that cross so that you wouldn't climb up the ladder. He went on the cross to bring you down out of hell, to bring you up to glory that's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's why we can bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. But friends, forgiveness can only be offered on his terms, not ours. You see, Jesus was declaring this paralytic forgiven. Because Jesus was revealing himself as the God-man. The man of Nazareth who would suffer and humbly submit to the will of his heavenly father. Even to the point of death on a cross. But this divine prerogative to forgive sins was not something Jesus tried to usurp from God. This was an authority Jesus possessed. Because in Jesus we find the saving and reigning rule of God himself. Jesus, as God in human flesh, the Son of God dwelt among us as a man, truly God and truly man. So how would Jesus back up his words? What would be the proof and the pudding? that Jesus really is who he says he is. How would Jesus shut the mouth of his naysayers and prove that he really is who he says he is? Look at verses 8 to 11. He would do that by healing the paralytic. And immediately Jesus Pick up your bed and go home. Beloved, this was Jesus' mic drop moment. Things got quiet for a bit. In order to show the scribes and all the onlookers for that matter that he wasn't a blasphemer, he looked at that paralytic man And told him to do the humanly impossible. He told that paralytic man who could not walk, walk. He told that paralytic man who could not pick up his own bed, pick up your own bed. And he told that paralytic man who had been carried by his mom, by his dad, by his friends, by his family members, by the men in the community from town to town, house to house, year after year. This man might have been carried from a roof down to Jesus, but he left that house walking on his two feet. That paralytic man went home healed. Probably heel clicking all the way back. Friends, the only reason... Jesus would even say such a thing. Think logic. Some of you think logically. You've taken a few semesters of philosophy and logic, and then you think you're smart. Here's your chance to, like, finish the drill. The only reason Jesus would make a claim like this is either because he's a lunatic and he's speaking out of his mind, or Jesus really is who he says he is. It's one or the other. You can't buffet pick Jesus. It's an all-or-nothing. Everything he says and does and teaches, you trust and believe and follow, or you count him off as a kook. There is no middle ground. Beloved, Jesus is the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite identity, that he'll refer to himself more than any other identity in the Gospels. What does the identity of the Son of Man refer to? Well, as we study Mark's Gospel, You'll see him refer to this over a dozen times. But here's what we can discover, at least for this morning. Jesus is the humble servant who lived among men as a man who would suffer and die for the sins of wretched sinners. Jesus is the obedient son who would be judged under the wrath of God to bring about everlasting peace and forgiveness of sins to lost sinners like us. But listen, Jesus is also the exalted, human-like figure from Daniel chapter 7, to whom the Ancient of Days has given the divine authority to rule forever and ever and ever over every kingdom, over every nation, over every dominion throughout all eternity. Listen, that means there is no rival with King Jesus. Jesus wins. There is no equal or close second place to competing with Jesus. Jesus wins. And there is no religious teacher or compassionate friend that can outdo the power and mercy of Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is what we most need because Jesus and Jesus alone is all we have. Oh, friends, Jesus is not someone to be admired once a week for two hours on Sunday. Jesus is someone to be worshipped with your whole life. If Jesus isn't, little by little, more and more, becoming your everything, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, even if it's baby steps, it's not even towards that pursuit. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. He's already overcome the world. That means he already knows what you're going to have to face in this world. He already punched Satan in the mouth, put him to open shame, has the keys to death in Hades. What attacks from Satan can you and I face today that Jesus doesn't sovereignly already reign over? What boss or authority figure That you have to submit under is more powerful than King Jesus. Listen, he has been given an authority that one day will be realized universally where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So, friends, do you want to be forgiven? all your sin then come to Jesus do you want to be washed clean of all your guilt and shame before God then come to Jesus do you want someone leading your life that is more loving and always good and all powerful And come to Jesus. You see, in love, Jesus came to die for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And God would raise him from the dead three days later, declaring his power and authority over the grave. You see, this resurrection power is what can heal the deepest and darkest stains that sin has left crippled in our life which leads to our last and final image, image number three, the response towards God's power and God's mercy to heal. Mark concludes this powerful scene with the results of Jesus' authority and the reaction of the crowd towards God's power and mercy to heal. Look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. What Jesus said about himself was revealed that day as true. What he told the crippled man to do he did. That crippled man left healed and happy in Jesus. But more importantly, he got up as a forgiven man, a saved man, a redeemed man. Friends, Jesus healed many people during his public ministry, and he did so to demonstrate his deity and his compassion for hurting people. But Jesus didn't heal everyone of their physical infirmities and diseases. He came primarily not as an infirmity healer, but as the Savior for our sins. Jesus came not to give us an easier life either. Friends, many paralytics remained paralytics till they got to glory. I know a young man, now he's in his mid-40s, so he might just be a man, a dude, Who's a preacher that was born with cerebral palsy? It's really hard for him to get up on stage and even preach now. But one day, Canis is going to be walking better than the rest of us. Friends, regardless of whatever your physical ailment is, whether it be mental or physical or both, one day our good shepherd will make you totally whole and healed. You see, our good shepherd leads us and guides us till he brings us safely home to glory. You see, when that paralytic man got home and he said, get up, pick up your mat, and go home, that's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of how God does the humanly impossible. He awakes us from the spiritual dead. He makes us whole and happy in Jesus, and he says, by God's grace, one day, I'm going to take you home. Friends, that's a beautiful picture of how Jesus is walking with you today. That's a promise, beloved, that one day we will see realized as a future inheritance. One day, all of us who have turned to Christ will receive that new heavenly body and the new heavens and new earth. Roy, ain't that gonna be good? Ain't gonna be good? That's what I'm talking about. I don't know what we're gonna look like, but we're gonna look good because Jesus has already got this custom fit for us but friends in this life there is no promise of being totally healed physically but if we come to Jesus in repentance and faith we can be healed spiritually you see many people want to come to Jesus to obtain all of heaven's blessings now but they don't want Jesus for Jesus they want to get rich quick fix Jesus is just another broker or financial investor for them. But friends, if Jesus dying on the cross for your sins is not enough, Jesus will never be enough. But he is. You see, you and I can't receive the blessings of heaven until we first bow to the one who purchased those blessings through his blood. That's why we should all come to Jesus, simply to get Jesus and not try to attain heaven on earth now. Brothers and sisters, do you notice the response, not of the paralytic man, but the crowds who witnessed this scene? Mark says that they were all amazed. I want you to look down in your Bibles. This is that one part where I'm going to make you do this. Even if you're asleep, just kind of nod down. They were all amazed, and they glorified who? All right, say it a little louder. We're in a Christian church. They glorified who? God. Saying we never saw anything like this. Friends, the ultimate point of this scene is not Simon Peter's hospitality, though that was very kind of him, and we should all want to exemplify hospitality. The ultimate point of this scene is not even the faith of the four men who brought the paralytic man, the Jason Bourne team. They're not the point though their faith is commendable and we should imitate that faith. The ultimate point of this scene is that God is being glorified. Friends, that's the point. That's why Mark 2, 1 to 12 is here. That's why the Spirit inspired Mark to write this text. It's the worship and glory of the one true God that God might receive the honor and praise and glory that is due His name. Friends, that's why we exist. We exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We exist to do everything for the glory of God, right? What did Jansen read earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31? You want a verse to memorize? You want a verse to think about this summer? So whether you eat or drink... I love this next phrase, Paul's so good, or whatever you do. Whatever you eat or drink, and here's this big basket of your life, everything else is for the glory of God. Why do we sing songs like we do here at CCBC? Songs like A Christian's Daily Prayer, And We Will Glorify, or Oh Great God. Well, friends, go back and read the lyrics of the song this afternoon. We sing songs like this because we need reminders of whose glory we should be most concerned about. There's nothing in these songs about us. It's about Him. There's nothing all that glorious about us except Christ in us and through us. That's glorious. You see, the most important thing about yourself is who or what you worship. The most important thing about yourself is what or who you worship. Friends, ask ourselves this question this morning. What are you most concerned about in your life right now? What's weighing on your heart the most? Amidst all your plans for the rest of 2021, somewhere in there, Or somewhere in here, what are you most preoccupied with in your life? Is it what you can gain from others and what you can get from God? Or is it what you can give to others and how you can give glory to God? Beloved, if you want to truly live for God's glory in your life, then begin by first looking at the love and mercy of Jesus. Did Jesus heal everyone? No. His mission to proclaim the gospel was more urgent and eternally important. Did Jesus meet everyone's felt needs? No. No. He came to please his heavenly Father, even if that meant not appeasing others along the way. Did Jesus say and do things that were offensive at times? Well, yes, but they were the exact things people needed to hear, and even the hardest things that Jesus ever said were never sinful, and they never came out of a sinful heart either. But friends, did Jesus show a spiteful impatience and bitter anger to those who were leaning on him for help? No. Even though Jesus' life was busy and his life was often interrupted by people, And it got messy and complex, like this paralytic man interrupting the Bible study. Jesus always embodied what true love really is. Paul David Tripp has described what true Christ-like love is really well when he says this. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. Husbands, would your wife say that you demonstrate that kind of love towards her? Wives, would your husband say that you show that kind of love towards him? Parents, would your kids say that you show that kind of love towards them? Fellow Christian, would the church members who spend the most time with you say that you show this type of love towards them, even when they make your life more complicated and messy? CCBC, if we want to have a God-glorifying church and I hope we do. It will always begin with exalting Jesus for who he is. And if we want to see God's power at work in and through us like we've never seen before, then we have to follow Jesus like we never have before. Friends, God is a glory magnet. We are glory thieves. It's all about him. Which means we must yield our whole life to bringing him glory. In our church, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our jobs, in our finances. Even down into our thought life. Or what we text message. In everything. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If Jesus has forgiven you of your sins, is there any part of your life that you're exempt from bringing God glory? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus as he really is. For the problem is not with Jesus. The problem was with our eyes and our hearts. Oh, Father, I pray that you would use this message Whatever was said was true would penetrate our hearts. Whatever I said was false would be forgotten. Lord, I do pray that we would be hungry to see glory radiate to you. Lord, I also pray that, Lord, any of us who are experiencing all sorts of physical pain, spiritual suffering, that we would see even the compassion of Christ towards this paralytic man. Lord, teach us how to love like Christ, even when it's messy and complicated, that we would show patience and kindness like you have to billions. We ask all this in Jesus' name.